Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever you happen to be. This is Kyle Claridge coming to you from Rochester, Minnesota Mayo Clinic. And we are coming from the Department of Cardiology and the Division of Heart Failure today with our expert, Dr. Naveen Pereira, who is an expert not only in the genetics of uh, cardiomyopathies, but has developed a whole practice around precision medicine, which helps us to guide treatment for patients by using genetic testing. Naveen, it's just a great pleasure to have you here today. And I think our audience will really be interested and what you have to say about genetic testing and how that's really making its way into clinical practice. So if I'm sitting with a patient in my office, I guess, and this patient now has dilated cardiomyopathy, why should I, as a medical provider or a patient, be interested in knowing the genetics around that diagnosis? Right, so dilated cardiomyopathy typically is defined as dilated cardiomyopathy when the heart chamber size is enlarged and the heart function is reduced, which we calculate by something known as left ventricular ejection fraction. And when we don't find a cause for the enlargement and the reduction in heart function, um, we call it dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and what we have increasingly learned is genetics plays an important role in uh, determining the etiology of dilated cardiomyopathy or is an important cause of dilated cardiomyopathy. So approximately up to 40% of patients who have a family history of sudden death or dilated cardiomyopathy um, could have a genetic cause for their dilated cardiomyopathy. And if people don't have a family history, up to 20% of them may have a genetic cause for dilated cardiomyopathy. So in the old days, we think you'd need a family history and that, therefore the, there'd be genetics that could be a cause for the dilated cardiomyopathy. Uh, but now we know that people without a family history could also have a genetic cause. So number one, it provides you with a molecular diagnosis of why you have a weak heart, why you have dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, um, number two is once we understand if there's a genetic cause for the dilated cardiomyopathy, you can use it for screening your family members. So for example, uh, if a patient has children, or brothers and sisters, um, they can be screened for that one particular gene. And if they are gene, the children of family members who are gene positive or genotype positive, those, will, those family members will have to be very carefully followed um, by ECHO and ECG to diagnose if they have dilated cardiomyopathy. But importantly, those who do not have the genotype uh, or not gene gen gen genetic test positive, 
those will have the same prevalence of dilated cardiomyopathy as the rest of the population, in the sense, the implications that they don't have to worry that they may have the same disease as their parents or brothers or sisters, what have you. So it helps in giving a molecular diagnosis. It helps in screening the rest of the family members. And now, importantly, there are certain genes like LMNA, for example, um, where we know the prognosis is poor. These patients have very high risk of sudden death. Uh, so it helps guide therapeutics. And more recently, uh, we have um, uh, clinical trials that are targeting specific genotype positive patients with dilated cardiomyopathy with specific experimental drugs. So this is just in its infancy, uh, but I think it's going to open a whole um, area of precision medicine, treating people based on their genetic makeup in dilated cardiomyopathy. Wow, that's fascinating. So if I I think what I heard you say is that if I have a family history, I have a 40% chance of having a positive gene. Is that correct? Up to a 40% chance. And if even if I don't have a family history of dilated cardiomyopathy, but myself, my echo shows that, I would have up to a 20% chance of having a gene. That's and right. That once you identify those genes, you could be uh, using that for a prognostic indicator in some cases. And in addition to that, it may guide uh, therapies, which we call precision medicine. Is that, is, that a, is that correct? That's a beautiful summary. Absolutely right. So I think one of the things a person is, that I'm sitting with will want to know is, um, in, my own search, in my own search for my genetic cause, what's the yield of a genetic test? What kind of outcomes would you see? Um, you know, there's, would I see a gene? Would I see something else, you know, what, when you call me back, is it just going to be positive, negative, or what, how, how will that test be interpreted? Right. So um, genetic testing seems like a big black box to patients and even some providers. And so I have patients ask me, oh, you want me to do genetic testing? So what does that entail? And when I tell them it's just a blood test, they're surprised. So first of all, it's just a blood test. And, and you use that blood, uh, you isolate white blood cells and you extract DNA. So it's just a blood test. Secondly, once you do genetic testing, um, you, uh, it's very important to understand what kind of results you get. Yes. So right now, very commonly, we use these gene sequencing panels uh, that are widely available by various laboratories. And these panels don't look at your whole genetic makeup. They specifically look at genes that have been associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. And typically with dilated cardiomyopathy, there are 25 to 30 genes that are very important. Uh, but we have realized that there seems to be a genetic overlap between dilated cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, restrictive cardiomyopathy. So more and more people are moving towards using cardiomyopathy gene panels and not just focus on dilated cardiomyopathy genes itself. 
So these can go up to about 80 genes or so. So that's the number of genes that are typically assessed on these tests on the gene panels. Now, when once we do sequencing of these genes, we um, apply certain criteria. The gene sequencing companies interpret these um, variants and the American College of Medical Genetics have strict criteria as to what they call as pathogenic or likely pathogenic. So that's one readout that you get from the genetic testing, pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And these are met strict criteria um, on the basis of which we then can say that this gene genetic variant is responsible for the patient's condition or dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, then the second type of result you get is negative. I mean, none of the genes that have been assessed on that panel, uh, variation of those genes is responsible for the patient's cardiomyopathy. Now, the caveat here is though we looked at genes we think are responsible for cardiomyopathy and which are well published and associated, there could be some genes that we don't know about that associate cardiomyopathy. So even though a genetic test is negative, we always say that it could be possible that there's a genetic cause, but we've not identified it with the panel uh, which we used. And then comes the gray area. And these uh, results are reported as variants of uncertain significance, meaning that we've seen a certain variation in the gene, and we're not sure if that's pathogenic or likely pathogenic, meaning causing disease. And we're not sure whether it's just a benign, nothing to worry about kind of genetic variant. It's in a gray zone. And the and there are certain criteria that we use to call something pathogenic or likely pathogenic. So these gray zone variants or variants of uncertain significance basically uh, may meet some of those criteria, but not all of them. And they may be benign, uh, meet some benign criteria. So it's kind of in the middle area there. And so we have to tell the patient we're not sure whether this is responsible for your disease. We're not sure uh, that if this is completely benign and you have nothing to worry about. So there is that gray zone variance of uncertain significance readout that we can get. But the important thing to know about that variant of uncertain significance is with time and more and more patients getting genetic testing, we get more and more information. And with time, we are able to then categorize those variants of uncertain significance as just being benign or pathogenic or likely pathogenic. The other way we tackle these variants of uncertain significance, like for example, a genetic variant is not being reported in the population. So it's very rare. And we find it in our patients and it's in a gene that's responsible for cardiomyopathy, it becomes really suspicious, but we doesn't meet all criteria. So it's a variant of uncertain significance. What we can do is do a segregation analysis in the sense 
the there are certain gene sequencing companies offer complementary family testing. Mm -hmm. So all, all first degree relatives should have an ECG and echo, and all of them can get uh, sequenced uh, or genotype for that particular variant of uncertain significance. And if that variant of uncertain significance segregates to family members who have cardiomyopathy, and does not segregate to family members who do not have cardiomyopathy, then that is very suspicious and would move the variant of uncertain significance to being likely pathogenic. So this is known as segregation analysis. And that might give you a new gene that hadn't previously been understood as a, a, a gene associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. Absolutely. So uh, segregating that family and figuring that out, so which may have implications for other families. Very, uh, and, and the more people who get genetic testing, the more information we'll get ab about these variants and then understand whether these variants are pathogenic or benign, exactly. So I think what I heard, and I just try to recap here, gave us a lot of very important information. 25 to 30 genes that are pretty well established for dilated cardiomyopathy, but now we know there's overlap. So we are starting to test for a broader panel of cardiomyopathies that would include a, a wealth of other cardiomyopathies and you named off restrictive, hypertrophic, et cetera, that would fall into kind of this overlap area that goes up to 80 genes that people are screened for, but all of these are focused on the heart. And then the result of the test would be either you find a gene that's been established to cause pathogenesis in the heart, or you find no genes, or you find this variant of uncertain clinical significance. And that's the one that we talked about trying to get further testing and segregating, and maybe we discover a new gene. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, so what we're looking for is variation in the gene. And so uh, ultimately, we try to figure out that so all of us have the same genes, right? So it's the variation in the gene that causes pathogenicity. So what's ultimately reported is a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant in a gene that's associated with cardiomyopathy. Yeah, yeah. it is fascinating and it's quite complex. And I'm glad, there's, I'm glad we have an expert like you that we can rely on when we get these, these tests back. And that brings me to another question. Well, actually two, do you use genetic counseling in your practice? Um, so genetic counseling is absolutely essential um, um, uh, because patients have a lot of questions. Um, so for example, if uh, people, Patients worry about life insurance, about healthcare insurance. Now, as you and I know, we are protected uh, to, uh, in terms of genetics being used against us. Uh, we, for example, we would be at genetically high risk of developing cardiomyopathy, but I've not developed it yet. And now you want to get health insurance. The health insurance companies cannot use that information against you to jack up your premiums, for example. And that's Gina, there's legislation that's geared towards protecting us from that. But life insurance companies, if they get that information, could, could use it. 
um, and there's no law to prevent that. So patients do have questions about insurance eligibility. Also, um, there are there are questions about you know whether my medical insurance will cover genetic testing. Um, uh, the genetic counselors help navigate that landscape. Then patients have obviously important questions about what does it mean for my children when I have this genetic variant that could cause disease. What would it mean if I get married, have a family, etc. So depending on the type of transmission of these genetic variants, uh, genetic counselors are in, 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 invaluable in terms of trying to uh, explain all these inheritance patterns. Um, so uh, genetic counselors are the mainstay of genetic testing, uh, always recommended. The problem we've encountered, Kyle, is as we know in our practice, it's really hard. Genetic counselors are in so much demand. Yeah. Uh, the calendars are filled, you know, uh, two to three months out. I know. And, and our, our calendars cannot always be synchronized with that of the genetic counselor. So we in our practice in Mayo encountered an, um, an issue where Physicians were not ordering genetic testing because it took months to get the patient and genetic counselor's calendar. Patients then once got their medical therapy outline was saying, why do I really need to get genetic testing? You know, do I have to make a separate visit just to see the genetics counselor? It's not really going to change my medical therapy, um, et cetera. So patients and physicians didn't utilize genetic testing as they should. So we put together a process in the heart failure clinic where uh, we preemptively uh, associate, uh, put, uh, put a uh, order for genetic testing uh, with all new patients coming to the heart failure clinic. And then the physician who's seeing the patient said, well, this patient has ischemic heart disease, so we'll cancel the consult. Now, the consult is an e-consult, so it didn't really take away time of mm -hmm. any person. Uh, so that was great. Um, now, if a patient was appropriate, then we do have a genetics counselor on video explaining the whole uh, ramifications and, uh, of genetic testing. And, and then if the patient had any questions, they could ask the heart failure nurses who had a frequently answered, asked questions kind of pro forma. They were trained by the genetics counselors. And if there was something they couldn't answer, they could always page the genetic counselor and help the patient. But most, in my experience, there were very few questions that needed to go to the genetic counselor because this is pretty fairly standard. It's not mm -hmm. complex like cancer genomics or whole exome sequencing genomics. But I think you put hit on a couple of important points there that family testing could be very beneficial to the family members and that that has to be thought through very carefully. Yes. Some of this doesn't, once the patient has been seen and, and given their therapeutic pro program, that this uh, genetic counseling could take place either as an e-consult, electronic consult, or yeah. possibly a virtual visit with a genetics counselor if necessary. Which right. sounds like often is pretty easy to arrange and it could be asynchronous with the results or with the visit that you're having with the with the physician. 
Right. And the other thing is if the genetics counselor time is so valuable, if 60 to 80% of these results are negative, they don't need a genetics counselor at all. Right. So we've actually saved time and I think increased the satisfaction of genetics counselor because they're seeing patients now only with pathogenic, likely pathogenic or VUSs. Yeah, so you gave a really nice example of how we could possibly find new genetic abnormalities by segregating families' genes that are sort of in that realm. Do you, is this something that you recommend repeat genetic testing, or is this something that's kept at one of the companies that does the testing? And if one of those variants of uncertain significance becomes positive, would that then be um, relayed to the patient and the family? Or how does, how does that information, once you move from a, uh, a, a variant of uncertain clinical significance into, yes, this is a pathogenic gene, how does that get relayed? How do patients know that they get that information? Yeah, that's really important because uh, genetics is a fast-moving and ever-changing field. So there are two issues that come up with the speed with which genetics is moving. One is uh, my patient had genetic testing 10 years ago and we didn't find anything. So should we repeat genetic testing? And the answer is almost always yes, because the fields moved from five to 10 genes initially to now 20, 25 genes to 80 genes. And so it's very important to understand that if someone had gene genetic testing 10 years ago or even five years ago, things have changed. So it's always important to know what genes were sequenced when they had it done five, 10 years ago and to know what is available now. Or you could just refer them to the genetics counselor, whoever does genetic testing and they can figure it out. Uh, so whether you should repeat genetic testing that the answer is dependent on what was done before and what's available now. The second thing is, yes, if variants of uncertain significance are either benign or they're pathogenic, and if that status, that classification changes, the gene sequencing companies that we send these to or the laboratories inform us actually, because they have a record of the patient and the provider. And so they get back to us and say, well, this variant, we changed its classification. So please notify the patient. And then we notify the patient. And then that might change the family testing for that patient's family, because now they have a gene that could be screened in their siblings, their children, and maybe even their parents. It's right. And that's why we tell patients that irrespective um, patients, if, especially if there's a family history of dilated cardiomyopathy and no genetic variant has been identified as responsible for that, we still ask patients' families to be screened with ECHO. That's fantastic. Um, really important that even though you may not have a gene identified now that family members could either, once, if you have a gene, you can follow the gene screening process. Right. If you don't have a gene, you follow imaging-based and ECG-based right. screening. Yeah. The genetic testing just makes it easier. Yeah. And puts at least the people who don't have the genetic variant, their mind at ease. Yes. Yeah. And That's helpful. I want to shift gears here for just a minute and really tap your brain about the precision medicine. So 
can you give us an example of how genetic testing, once you have it and it may be positive for a gene, how that might guide the precision of our therapies for a given patient? Right. And I think this is less well known. A lot of physicians feel, you know, I'm going to give these patients beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, et cetera, guideline-directed medical therapy. So for example, if patients have uh, pathogenic variants in LMNA, lamin, AC, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. an important component of the nucleus of the cell. Those patients are at an extremely high risk of developing uh, ventricular arrhythmias and having sudden cardiac death. And in fact, it's been well described that the left ventricular ejection fraction can be 45% and they can have sudden cardiac death. So the guidelines actually recommend that if you have LMNA pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants and the ejection fraction is, does not meet a traditional ICD primary prophylaxis criteria of less or equal to 35%, uh, for those patients, even if they have an EF of 45% or 40%, um, one should consider an ICD if they have LMNA pathogenic variants and some other criteria, like if they're male, if they're non-sustained DT, which we don't use to make decisions for primary prophylaxis. We just use a cutoff of 35% after optimal medical therapy. So this is a classic example of you identify the patient at high risk for sudden death because of the genetic testing. And you may want to put in an ICD even before they reach that 35% EF cutoff. Yeah. Um, so, and, and as I mentioned before, now there are clinical trials where based on Titan mutations, uh, or we stop calling these mutations, genetic variants. Um, we, we now have specific therapy uh, that we are targeting patients to see if they're gonna get better. So some of these clinical trials and phase two clinical trials. So, so the uh, LMNA is pretty well established. If people have say RBM20, that's another gene that uh, plays an important role in transcription supporting mm -hmm. Titan. Um, and those patients typically have a poor prognosis. So you kind of have increased surveillance of patients with RBM20 because you know they're most likely be going to be heading towards transplant and advanced heart failure therapies. So it might even inform how closely you need to follow them up. Correct. Wow. And I see, and I, I think, Kyle, we are just in the infancy of this, um, especially with these on, uh, ongoing clinical trials. I think we're going to see cancer does this all the time, right? Based on the tumor, genetic variation, the tumor, you get specific therapy. We've not been doing this in cardiology. As you know, it's my passion in a way, uh, because no one is an average sum of all. <laughs> right. you know, very individualistic. And so 
providing treatment based on genotype, I think we're going to see subtypes of dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, not only on genotype, but other factors where we'll be able to more specifically treat patients with certain treatments. It's really a fascinating field. And you just let us down a very important uh, kind of how come I need to be tested to what implications it has for my family members. And even for me, as I'm a have, if I have a dilated cardiomyopathy, which knock on wood at this point in time, I don't. <laughs> but if I did, I definitely get my genetics tested after listening to you, Naveen. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience before we close today? Oh, by the way, you know, um, you could get whole exome sequencing. So, uh, you know, Mayo offers that service mm -hmm. uh, to for people who are interested and they could get their whole, all the 23,000 genes sequence. It's known as whole exome sequencing where they're just looking at the reading frames of the genes and you can kind of try and figure out what you're at risk for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people want to do that necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, but that service is now available for people to uh, get into. And it's done at a clinical kind of clear approved uh, medically reportable in the electronic health record. Yeah, and that uh, may be outside the scope of what we're talking about, but it, it does bring up the question for many patients are worried about what is their out-of-pocket cost for this genetic testing. I remember when it first came around, it was many times part of a, a study protocol. So it was paid for by the study. And then we went through a period where it was pretty right. darn expensive to get your genetic testing done. Where are we now? That's very important question. So the genetic commercial laboratories are very cognizant of this and many of them make it very easy. So patients are told, well, at the most, we're gonna submit this to insur your insurance company. At the most, you may have to pay out of pocket $150, $200, or maybe nothing at all. But at the most, you may have to submit that. If it's gonna exceed that cost, we'll call you and let you know before you decide to proceed or not. Um, as, so, and, Insurance companies, a lot of times for dilated cardiomyopathy, have no problem covering genetic testing. Uh, but even if you don't have insurance, now companies, because the cost of sequencing has come down almost, you know, like the cost of computers, yeah. it, it's analogous. I, I think it's called Moore's Law, actually, but the way the, the prices have come down significantly. Uh, the out-of-pocket cost, if you don't even want to go through insurance companies, as is I believe in the several hundred dollar range right now. So huge difference, Kyle, compared to when um, uh, we used to practice 10 plus years ago, yeah. uh, when it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, there's a lot to think about with genetic testing. And, and as you pointed out, it's a very fast moving, ever changing field that we're really gonna have to keep our eye on. And we'll definitely bring you back for further conversations about this topic because I'm sure our audience will have more questions. So this has been fascinating. And I think we, I personally have learned a lot from you over the years and, and particularly in this talk. So Naveen, thank you for your expertise. And there's no doubt your passion about precision medicine and genetic testing. 
Well, Kyle, I learned a lot from you. Great questions. And thank you for providing me the opportunity to elaborate on this topic. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for uh, your attention. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.